2021 is the date. You're listening to the Nick Holt Podcast. Joining me this morning is Dr. Cameron Murray. Cameron and I have done a podcast before that's proven to be one of the most popular podcasts I've done so far. That's definitely worth revisiting. Cam is an economist, and you can find his writing on fresheconomicthinking.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Cameron Murray, Dr. Cameron Murray. Thanks for coming in. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. But I'd just like to sort of get a bit of a better understanding of where you come from in terms of your intellectual pursuit of the knowledge and the truth that needs to be discovered right now. Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, I guess I've always been a bit of a bit of a nerd and a bit curious uh, and I uh, started doing engineering at uni, thinking, you know, I'm, I think I'm smart enough to do that. But I took a year off and I traveled the world and uh, really saw what more there is out there, sort of broadened my horizons. Uh, um, did a degree in property economics, which is very much about uh, property development and valuation and things like that. But ultimately... Um, during that time, I was a bit of a lefty and a bit of a greenie, and I was really interested in, you know, what can we do about climate change and the environment? And I wasn't an activist or anything like that, but I was definitely intellectually curious. So I, I, I did a master's degree in environmental economics at QUT, and, uh, and that, you know, that was probably the start of my... Uh, intellectual training on how to really think rigorously and be okay with changing your mind and be okay with discovering something that goes against your tribe or your group or your social networks views on and that in that in this case it was about uh, personal consumption choices and you know reducing carbon emissions is it great that we're all going to have teslas or solar panels or riding bikes and things like that and and so I did a bit of research on that and realized you know, the, the big issue is this rebound effect where if you ride your bike instead of driving, you still have income left over, which you can allocate to, you know, international holidays or, you know, airplane flights or whatever the case may be. It's actually rather than our individual actions adding up to do something, what they actually do is they offset as you, as you aggregate them over the economy. So, um, so I realized then that, you know, that's not the answer we all think it's the answer we're all telling ourselves it's the answer we're all feeling good about it and that's great but it's not the answer we actually have to do um, practical uh, social policy here we have to all come up with an agreement on not emitting carbon or capturing carbon or something and so that was my first um, sort of big big break intellectually of being able to look at the evidence and not um, feel the urge to twist it back to the way my my group or my tribe uh, thinks about it so and then anyway ultimately i i, I worked in government and I worked for property developers and i i came back a few years later uh, i i'd just about given up on economics i'd worked in government departments in the state regulator and and seen how little they achieve what they're intended to achieve um, and how much of a sort of 
game of pretend. It's all a bit of theatre. We're going to pretend we regulate. We're going to take the actions. And whether or not it actually performs that function, we don't really mind. As long as we look like we're doing what we should be doing. That really doesn't gel with me. <laughs> and I'd actually decided to, to leave economics and become a medical doctor. I, um, I just thought, I want to get up every day and do something useful. I don't want to get up every day and pretend I'm doing something useful in a government department or whatever the case may be. So I, I spent my last months at that job studying for the GAMSAT, the entrance test to medical school, got accepted to UQ. And I had two young kids at the time and was very uncertain because my wife had started a PhD and I'm just like, maybe medical school's not a good uh, thing right now. And I'd had uh, organized an event with Paul Friders, who was a professor at UQ at the time, and we were having a few beers after the event and I just I was unloading about economics and how, how it's a waste of time. <laughs> how I'd, you know, I've done this research, I've worked in these departments, I've, I've had a go. And he said, look, come and do a PhD with me. You seem to be sick of this corruption and this, this game. We can actually use economics to analyze that game and you'll find it more, more rewarding. And so that's what I did. Spent four years uh, trying to unpick how corruption or political influence happens. And it's not as simple as you think. Donations aren't bribes. Uh, most Donations by value come from donors who donate to both sides of politics equally. It's not as clear-cut as you think going in. Um, so I, that was another experience learning a lot. And then at the end of that, summarized, summarized this new view of uh, corruption or what we call the Game of Mates in the book Game of Mates that came out in 2017. And so that's been my journey. And, that, and now I'm here. I, I work at the University of Sydney. I mostly uh, do research on housing and planning. And that's another area where the stories in the press and the mainstream uh, are concocted and, and contrived not to actually be anywhere near an accurate representation of what's going on. So I'm, I'm in constant battles with how does, how does the economics of housing really work? Because the vested interests are controlling the narrative here. Yeah, and I picked up on. I first became familiar with you because uh, familiar of you because, um, or I should say, aware of you because you were on Q and A, a program that um, is similar to uh, pouring bleach on your eyes. However, I'm always interested when someone is on that program who goes against the grain of thought of the four other people who are agreeing with each other. What brought you to Q&A? Who invited you? How did that process happen? And what was the outcome of as you saw it? Okay, right. So Q&A is interesting. Um, when, when this COVID crisis began, and I'll just say crisis is a generic term, right? It's mostly a political crisis, let's be honest. Um, when it began... It was, it was quite, I was quite detached here in Brisbane, let's be honest. But I, I had written on my blog and I tweeted a few times um, that, you know, isn't it funny how uh, most people have never actually thought about death and never thought about how we invest resources as a society to prolong, death, pro prolong life or delay death. It just it became abundantly clear to me that people couldn't 
think that way. It was scary for them. So I'd written a few things and then I'd seen uh, my friend Gigi Foster on Q&A. She's an economist at the University of New South Wales and she's studied health economics before. She understands the the broad parameters of how to get longevity and well-being in a, in a society. And it was quite interesting because she was on there and she said, everyone's panicking, locking down zero COVID, bad idea, lockdowns cost lives. We need to, we need to look at the trade-offs we're making. And, and it was quite interesting because no one wanted to agree with that. They're all just saying, no, lockdowns are free. We, there's no trade-off. We're doing the right thing. And I remember... Clearly, the last thing that was said on that show was a politician saying, you don't know anything, Gigi. Australia's approach is going to get us out of this sooner than anywhere else. And what date was that? That was... Uh, Roughly. That was... We're talking in, 2020 here, aren't we? End of March or April 2020. Incredible. Incredible because the tribe online just went ballistic at Gigi. Luckily, she's not on social media. But she was threatened, defamed. The journos just piled in. On, online, I imagine. Online. Some of the biggest cowards on in the, the Southern ABC, Hemisphere. You know, there's plenty on mainstream press, right? Plenty of journalists got, got their views out there. Little cowards. And just said, oh, economists are bad, putting a value on people's lives. And which is exactly not what she said. She said, lockdowns cost lives. We're trading blood for blood. We need to compare these risks. She didn't say a life is only worth $5,000 or $5 million or some number. She said exactly the opposite. And not one single media report made that case. And I thought that was interesting. So anyway, I was asked to go on 12 months later because we still had COVID. We actually didn't get through COVID quicker uh, than all the other countries from Australia's approach, despite, um, you know, and that, and that person, I don't remember their name, but they still have their job, right? They, they still get asked for their opinion in the do. media. And Gigi uh, does not. So, I mean, she does to a degree, but this is, this is just classic, right? So being wrong doesn't matter as long as people agree with you at the time you say it, right? Mm. And so I was asked to go on um, by the producer 12 months later. They basically wanted to have the same debate again one year later. After multiple lockdowns, the long Victoria lockdown, and say, you know, are we doing this right? Where should we go from here? Because now, we now had some vaccines, right? Um, and I think at the time there was another snap lockdown somewhere. And so they wanted, they wanted her again, but obviously they like to churn through other people. And so I was asked to go on. And what's interesting is that I learnt that the producers and the staff involved in these shows... They can share your opinion, but if it's not popular, they won't personally say it on TV. They'll, they'll use someone they'll else they'll to use say someone it. someone else to come on and say, I want this to be said, but I can't say it. Who was I... the host at the time you went on? Stan Grant hosted Stan that Grant. one. Did you, did you um, get that impression from him? I actually got the impression Stan's much more thoughtful in person than his sort of media persona. And I think that's true um, if you've been around media a lot, you do know that Unless you meet someone in person, you're not getting an accurate representation mm-hmm. of what they're really mm-hmm. like. And that's definitely true of politicians. And they have a media persona that they have to manage uh, and image manage themselves. But in person, they can be quite different. And it's yeah, the number of people who don't realize that 
and make personal judgments based on the media representation of someone is is quite interesting, I find. Did Stan Grant give you uh, an indication that he did feel the same way as you? He had very similar concerns. So in the green room afterwards, we spoke for two hours nearly amongst the other guests, and there was a lot more agreement in the green room than on TV, which I found quite interesting. Who were the other guests, Scam, on that episode, if you remember? uh, There was an epidemiologist... uh, uh, I'll remember her name soon, and there was the head of the AMA, and I'll remember his name <laughs> as well. Um, but and and we had a bit of a stoush on TV, right? Um, but a- a- anyway, since that time, Stan has written articles raising his concerns about these extended lockdowns and the human toll of them, and whether our zero COVID approach is justified, which I, I-, I applaud him for. Um, and so it's it's nice to see him, you know, raising these issues in public. But the lesson I learned there, uh, there was a question from the audience. When are we going to vaccinate kids? Shouldn't we quickly rush to vaccinate them? Because, you know, my kids are snotty and they go to school and pass things around. And of course, you know, the way Q&A works, they ask people whose expertise are in other areas if they have a general opinion on some particular matter, right? It's not It's not like they only have doctors when they talk about health policy right and it's not like they only have economists when they talk about tax policy um, and i said it's crazy to vaccinate kids it's just not a priority kid the, the orders of magnitude difference in risks is many thousands we just need you know the vaccine clearly works for the elderly that's where we should focus and the head of the ama had interrupted me and said are you telling me kids don't get covid and i said no I'm saying the risk is thousands of times lower. It's not a, not a priority. And he went on a bit of a, a rant, gave the audience the impression that I was wrong, but then concluded and said, oh, the vaccines aren't approved for kids and the, uh, you know, the Australian technical group on vaccine advice, whatever they're called, they wouldn't recommend it unless it was individually beneficial for each kid anyway, so they haven't recommended it. And I just and and afterwards, someone from the audience came up and said, "Oh, I thought it was going to get really interesting when that guy interrupted you about vaccinating kids, and then he finished by agreeing with you, and then my brain exploded because I just thought, what well, what the hell just went? What the hell just yes, happened?" Yes, this is this is uh, AMA President Omar Korshid we're talking about here. That's right. And if you watch that episode, you'll see um, just how unhinged this guy is in his um, attempted debate with Cameron here. Uh, and look. But let me interrupt. Sure. He's, he's got a job where he has to say a certain thing in, t- in, in the media. If you talk to him in private, he's very reasonable and very knowledgeable about the balance of risks and where the research is going. That's and why I say unhinged in a particular way. That's, that, but that's, I think people don't understand that yeah. when, they, when they see the media. We'll talk a bit more about yeah, that yeah, and yeah. That th- your ideas behind why that, that is the case. Yeah, that's a good. <laughs> I mean, that, how long? That is could it? be. How that's a big discussion. And I think this is. We might follow that up, but maybe briefly, you can talk yeah, about. Yeah, um, that's that's an amazing, uh, amazing issue that people have to have a persona for their public show and can't be honest. And I, it it makes sense to me. I, I don't want to say people are bad people for doing that. You have a job. Um, you need to, in some ways, justify to yourself. Well, if I don't toe the line and try and steer the ship my way then someone else will do this job and they'll be worse than me and they'll you know 
they'll be worse at providing information. They'll do a worse job. So that's how people um, justify, um, you know, slight misrepresentations for the greater good to themselves. I actually, as a quick side note, I did a classroom experiment in my PhD. So I wrote a computer game and had students... um, basically play this game where they could find a mate and steal money off other people. And and 84% of groups that I did this experiment on, these little corrupt groups formed and stole money off each other. But the interesting part, which is relevant to this, is how these people who did it justified it to themselves. These are young, honest university students in a computer lab coming in to have a garden experiment and stealing $50 from someone they don't know by their decisions in a computer game. And I did this survey afterwards and uh, they justified it to themselves because they would say, well, if I didn't do it, the other guy would get in charge and he'd do it worse than me. He'd do a worse job. He'd steal more money. So I had to, I had to sh- shoulder that burden and be the bad guy and steal money off that person. And I just was shocked at how quickly and in, in, in how such a low stakes environment in how such a low-stakes environment people could, um, could do that and justify it to themselves. So now when we talk about someone who's got a career, an important position with an institution behind them, I can definitely see why they have to toe the line uh, and make sure everyone's on board and that sort of stuff. So that's a quick side note on, on him. I don't want to give the impression that he's an unthinking guy, but he's in a position where most people would have to act that way. Okay, what I'm going to do is just on that, to round up that point is I'm going to read what uh, what you said on that episode in that in the particular situation we're talking about, and then I'm going to read what um, the president of the AMA said. So Cameron said that I think people are right to be complacent because I think compared to what we see in the media, I think people have a better judge of the risks than what we've seen in the media. From a public health perspective, it's not clear to me that any of our reactions have been ideal. I've read the pandemic plans from prior to 2020, and most of what we've done were not in them. School closures were not recommended. Working from home was not recommended. Border closures were not recommended. We know this virus is a thousand times worse for elderly people than the young, and we don't need to vaccinate up to 100% of the young people before we open up. That is an imbalance of risks. Dr. Korshid then replied, are you seriously suggesting that COVID doesn't affect young people or that border closures haven't made us almost the most successful country in the world when it comes to managing this pandemic? I mean, it's an extraordinary question to to, to pose in response to what Cameron said, because here's the thing with this. Australia is the most successful country in the world when it comes to this in terms of numbers, one of, right? And here we are now, 18 months on, and the response to the pandemic is spiralling out of control and the irrationality is growing exponentially yeah it's it's amazing i mean he's right if if our objective was to have few covid cases 
great, we've done really well. If our objective is to maximize lifetimes and well-being of the community, I think we've done terribly. I mean, it's this sort of home detention and lockdowns, it's, we don't think about it like this, but we think putting someone in prison is bad because we detain them and we take away their freedoms. Put 20 million people and tell them not to go anywhere. Oh, there's, a, there's no cost to that. You should all be fine. You know, what are you complaining about? Um, people have switched their brains off. And, and when, when you do get through to someone and go, you know, there's a human cost to this. You know, um, each year, um, what's the number off the top of my head? So each year about 0.7 or 0.8% of people die, right? It's, it's uh, 190,000 a year. You detain people for six months... Okay, 80,000 people were detained for the remaining of, remainder of their life and couldn't see their family. That's right. And you're telling me that's for their benefit? These 80,000 people that lived their last six months detained in their home and couldn't see their family and then no one can attend their funeral, that somehow there's no human welfare cost to that? And let's increase the ante on this and talk about cases that I've been getting uh, reports on and people have been providing me with information. Really sad stuff. Um, I think maybe the saddest and, and most damaging um, result of these mandates because I think that it's going to have multi-generational effects on people and that is that where we've got 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 10-year-old children who are now essentially perpetually trapped inside homes of, let's say, I'll give you one example. A 12-year-old now in Sydney has been inside, trapped inside the home of an abuser that's his stepfather. Now, that stepfather is not getting happier in that home and, that, and he's taking it out on that child. There's going to be thousands of these cases. Now... You want to talk about welfare, human welfare? How short-sighted could someone be? The only people that do not see what you and I are talking about as a problem surely don't have any problems from lockdowns themselves. Look, that's funny you mentioned that. The recent survey came out in, um, I think, from the US about the support for vaccine passports. And it was really interesting. Those who are able to work from home have cushy office jobs, very supportive, majority supportive. Those who actually go to work on construction sites, in service industries and whatnot, hardly any support for having a vaccine passport. So it's really the case of people who are unaffected, telling others who bear the burden what to do and telling them to suck it up. And by the way, it's your fault that the virus is spreading. Um, you're definitely right. People aren't meant to be detained in confined spaces with nothing to do and uh you know it really it really think about health you close all the gyms tell everyone to stay home yeah okay it's only <laughs> it's supposed to only be three days it turns out to be three months but just the level of fitness and health and diet and alcoholism across the population as a whole 
Remember, hardly anyone... So the excess deaths in Sweden, right? Everyone's still... People have not updated their views on Sweden, despite the facts. Had 5% additional deaths in people over 50 for one year. Now, Australia pretty much had that same situation from 2015 to 2017 over two years, and no one noticed. And, <laughs> and you know, people are running around saying, oh, we would notice if 5% more elderly people died. Now, that's just switching your brain off, in my view, because the variation in death each year is around 5%, and no one notices. Now, yeah, sure, it's going to more happen in some weeks than others, and yes, that will... Yeah, it cause a little bit of backlog at the hospitals. But do you know the hospitals are designed to work at peak capacity and have backlogs? Maybe the lesson is instead that we should invest in a little bit of surplus capacity in the health system like we do in the military. We keep them employed even though there's no water fight just in case. Maybe that's what we do with the health system to deal with the variability. We have a bit of more excess capacity. So, and then in the, in the low times, we get a few more low pri- priority, all that elective surgery through. And in the peak times, we get the important treatment and then the elective surgery waits. So no one, you know, we're going to build quarantine camps before we build another hospital. Yeah. And also just... Isn't that mad? Uh, there's nothing that isn't mad at this stage. Um, Not only mad, but in my opinion, will be viewed very criminally because let's take a look at some of the maybe the more human... I mean, look, elective surgery, of course, will prove itself. Sorry, the the, uh, reluctance and the refusal of elective surgery, I imagine, will have um, a measurable consequence a measurable consequence at some point. However, we're going to see some... We can see things instantly right now, and that's alcoholics are not going to AA. Drug addicts are not going to NA. People are not going to anger management. All this stuff, right? These are real problems right now. Mate, it's... Yeah, uh, and, and there are many doctors speaking out about this, right? There are plenty of people speaking out about this but they're being silenced and there's this group think going on in the media and that is probably another layer of uh, another issue we should probably... Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, because it can't be true. Like, it can't be true that there are no costs to this lockdown policy. So why aren't we... It's not true. Like, it's implausible. By any creative reasoning that you could come up with, that you could lock down society for zero health cost. And why isn't that getting media attention? Why aren't these people on the front page? Why do I know that um, this person, this young person died with COVID, but I don't know about all the other thousands of people who didn't get um, you know, their appointments or who are living in pain because they've delayed surgeries or delayed treatments? Um, why don't we see them? Why don't we have their faces on the media? It, it, it's a puzzle, isn't it? it? It's it's not. I mean, I don't see it as a puzzle because look, I don't know the answer to to why, but I do know the what, right? And and I do know that by reporting the deaths of ninety year olds, right, with no other information, at the very least is lying by omission, which is equally as problematic as lying by commission, right? Now, if you lie by omission, 
you're leaving out the entire well you're not telling the entire story which means you're not providing the whole truth so an example of this quickly would be i turn up to a, a motor accident as a journalist right i'm a i'm a crime scene reporter there's uh, I, I arrive at the site there's been an accident a car has swerved off the road driven into a post and the driver's been killed instantly the, let's say the passenger has been killed instantly I arrive and I talk to my source, my primary source, and that's the police officer who I, who I have a relationship with. I say, what happened? The police officer says to me, there was a, this, a drunk driver swerved off the road, drove into a pole. He's alive. The passenger got killed. Okay? Now, I have the full information. I have as much truth as I can to write this story, and that is that... Um, and a, a drunk driver has killed his passenger by swerving off the road. Now, if I take that information that the police have given me and choose to instead write, a woman has died tragically in a motor accident on the Sunshine Coast after her car swerved into a pole, right? And I leave out the part about the alcohol, about being, being drunk. Yeah. That's not the story. That's a totally different story. Yep. That's so true. <laughs> and that's what they're doing with COVID every day. Every day. Well, it's... grim news today as another 100-year-old has died from COVID-19, proving just how dangerous this epidemic really is. Well, hang on a second. Tell me a bit more about this death. Just remember, half of 100-year-olds die every... If you're 100, your chances of surviving the next to the next year are like 50-50 or less. <laughs> yeah, but so uh, it's an extraordinary no one, age no, no to live No one understands, to. right? Once... I think I think once you're 80, you got an, you're an 85 percent chance of surviving to the next year, and once you're 90, it's it's like 70 <laughs> percent. Once you're 100, it's less than 50 percent. That's on average. And as I said on Twitter the other day, I mean these people are genuine sickos. We should be celebrating the life of a 90 year old, right? That's that's and this is the other interesting thing. I I shared some um yeah, there's a new article in Science uh, a couple of weeks ago showing. Uh, that COVID is less deadly in children than, than what we thought. We've got all the data. We know every child. We've checked their history. Uh, the chances of a healthy child dying, less than one in a million. And people on social media just couldn't handle good news. They just kept saying, but you don't know about, what about Delta? What about long COVID? What about this? Isn't that interesting? What do you think that is? Because I think you've hit the, you've really, you've really touched on something important here is that, uh, no one wants to report any good news, and there's lots of it. I don't, yeah, well, I mean, you know, what do they sell, say about in the news business? Show me the blood and gore or something like that. Yeah, well, as I said to you earlier, I worked for an editor once that said uh, editors love crisis because they sell papers and it gives their journalists work to do. Now, I, I'm going to relate this back because I think it's a lot to do with how this grey corruption and game of mates works. So I, I've studied human social behaviour in terms of political groups and their biases towards each other and how they like to tell each other the same stories and favour each other um, over time. And I think it's a similar thing going on here. Um, journalists who've, you know, they want that, the fear obviously sells, but if an expert, you know, if they wanted an expert's view on the risk, the expert that plays down the risk, if they speak to two experts, won't get in the article. The expert who plays up the risk 
will get in because that adds to the fear in itself. So they're actually also self-selecting um, expertise. And this is this is another thing that really bugs me about journalists. They don't have any sort of statistical or analytical abilities themselves. They only pick and choose who they want to tell them something. And they'll just keep picking someone until they tell them something that fits well with their article. And I've experienced that as an expert myself. Um, people calling me and they're trying to get a quote out of me that they can put in. And I used to fall for this at, at first because they'd make make something more like... And, and I would joke about it like, you know, that, you know I'd give sort of half-joking responses because it's kind of absurd. But now I've, I've learned why politicians... Um, are very careful with what they say and won't answer questions because their quotes are going to be taken out of context. And so journalists will shop around, talk to you for 20 minutes. If you don't say a quote they want, they'll hang up and they'll go find someone else and they'll try and bait them into saying a quote they want. And then you'll, you're like, oh, I told them, I explained the details of this and they published something ridiculous. So they're looking because they're looking for a quote to fit their story Correct. rather than a story that fits the quote. Correct. Correct. And, uh, it's, and, and anything that's subtle is too difficult for journalism, right? You can say, oh, there's no hero. Like, like I'm trying to say um, Omar, the head of the AMA, you know, he's not a villain. He's a person in a difficult situation who has to say certain things. And that's how we should understand how we're getting our information. But that's too subtle. The media will say, no, Cameron's the villain. He's the hero. There's nothing more to the story. I'm like, Okay, that's not really the story. You've just made that up. They they think they're writing the next Batman, right? They they think, oh no, where's who's the hero here? Who's the villain? You can't it can't just be really subtle, right? The poor poor Batman, you know, he grew up in a He's difficult family. Yeah, you, know, you know, hopefully as as our sort of storytelling improves, we can have more more subtlety. So you you think that journalists essentially um, are not really thinking critically at all about COVID-19 right now. They're, they're driven by more by self, pure self-interest and remaining relevant and getting invited yeah. to the right parties and all Correct. that stuff. Correct. I mean, imagine you're a journalist and you've gone and interviewed, say, John Ioannidis. He's the world's expert epidemiologist. He's one of the most cited living scientists in the world. And he says, well, lockdowns uh, have huge health costs and COVID's much less deadly than we thought. Um, it's really got a concentrated risk profile in the elderly uh, and we should open up and, and let's get on with it. Okay, that journalist doesn't have a career because that article doesn't get any clicks or shares, right? Um, and so it's just, it's just the incentives of, of the, the institutions that we have that sell ads and get clicks and, and the truth Maybe it gets through by accident sometimes, maybe not. But it also raises this, this issue that, um, and maybe you've heard of it, Gelman amnesia it's called. And it's quite an interesting thing because when you watch the news and you see, or one of these are current affairs shows, and you see a, a, a segment on your area of expertise, typically you'll read it and go, oh, that's a bit oversimplified. That's not really how it is. It's way more subtle. Um, yeah, they got that bit backwards, right? So you read it and you're really critical because you know that area and you're like, oh, that's not actually, you know, that's a bad article on average. 
Then you turn the page and you read the next article about, you know, Afghanistan, the Taliban, climate change, this, that, whatever. And you go, oh, is that what the truth is? Oh, that, might, that one must be the truth. They got my article wrong, but I'm sure the rest of the paper's fine. No, what you should know is that they're all wrong. They're all equally wrong with some grains of truth sprinkled through, some misrepresentations, etc. And when people read the news, that's not the lens they have. They also have the lens that what's on the news is a good statistical representation of reality. Oh, this person died from this. Oh, it must be a really bad problem. No, it's on the news because it's really rare. If it happened every day, it wouldn't be on the news. You can't report if the same thing happens every day, right? You, you know, you, if you see it on the news, you should say, oh, that's probably really low risk. That must be quite unusual. Oh, that's interesting. I've filed that away, but it must be unusual and low risk. I'm not really scared of it because it's on the news. And yet we think the opposite. And, and we're wired to think like that. I think it takes a lot of training. And, and as I said, when I did my PhD, it took me a while to think things through. And it's scary to train your brain to um, let go of this built-in sort of hardwired approach of learning about the world and be much more rigorous and critical. And when you do that, unfortunately, you lose a lot of friends along the way because you stop agreeing with your tribe and repeating what they say because you're like, well, how do we know this, guys? Maybe we should dig into it. You know, it can't be that clear-cut and true. The truth is always a lot more subtle and difficult than what we are assuming. I'm going to go and unpick it. And when I come back, I probably won't agree with you as much. And it, and it requires a, a tremendous amount of humility as well. You have to be able to um, humble yourself to say, I was wrong, right? Which is something that everyone should be doing on a daily basis right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a habit I've tried to get into and I try and blog when I was wrong. And uh, look, if I look back... Uh, well, I think uh, you've done that because, you know, you're now speaking about things that are extremely unpopular. Now, one way that I think that we can understand that the mainstream media or the Australian journalists and our media, one way that we can detect the clear lack of critical thought is through asking this question. Have it, are any of them saying anything good about COVID-19 right now? Are any of them saying, look, a 90-year-old did die, but they had half a lung, right? Or, no, these numbers are actually quite good compared to other countries. London, for example, the UK is getting around 30. It's dropped now, but it was getting around 30,000 cases. Florida, open for business. Uh, they actually will not say anything good. Now, that's being either willfully or unwillfully com complicit in it. Either one, take your choice. It's the same thing to me. I, yeah, I, I don't know. So we know that vitamin D is good for COVID in prevention. So we should, like, luckily Australia's got a lot of sun, right? We all get a lot of sun. So if, as a population level, we're less at risk than many Northern Hemisphere countries, right? They don't get as much sun. That's great. I've never heard anyone talk about this. And say, hey, our population risk is probably not quite as severe as other places because of this. No, you're right. And, and I, I'm just not sure. I, I mean, I, I put up a, a tweet um, 
when this article in Science came out about the risk for children being low and that the risk of the flu is higher and everyone just lost lost it. They... <laughs> uh, something that's easily demonstrable simply by looking at the Australian Bureau of Statistics mortality provisional mortality report, right? These are just, right. This is just hard numbers on a screen. Uh, and um, people don't want to believe it now because they're, they're sucked into this fear story. And if, if, if you're going to say anything, it has to be that it's worse than you think. And that's, that's this tribal thing, right? You, if you do that, you get rewarded. Other people go, yeah, that's right. It is worse than we think. Good on you for saying it. You're with us. Well, you get, yeah, and you get... The way that I believe they, they work in this area is that first the first person comes along and says, you know, the first journalist comes along and says, um, COVID-19 is bad. The second person comes along and says, COVID-19 is really bad. And then the next person comes along and says, well, not only is it really bad, it's out of control. Our country needs to be shut down. Kids need... To, like, so you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, it snowballs. And, and, Who and can be the biggest kind of fear monger? That's right, and and how do you and, and when you have a group supporting you in that process, what? How do you? How do you? Where does the truth go? Where does it go? I think that is a question that we will leave people with. Uh, I understand you're gonna you're happy to come back and do this again next week, yeah, and if not in a few days, a week, and we'll we'll, we'll hopefully do some regular ones with this. Um, I know that a lot of my listeners are big fans of Cam's independently from my podcast. Uh, so we'll get Cam back in um, a week, next week sometime, and we'll, we'll pick up from there. But leave, ask yourself that question and just maybe, Cam, you could, you could wrap it up and just uh, give people a few things to be thinking about right now that you think the critical mind should be focused on. Yeah, well, what I like to say to people is when you get your information, if the source of that information, the person, the reporter couldn't have told you the opposite if the opposite were true then that's not information right did they put their reputation on the line to tell you something or did they tell you the easy story the popular story the clickbait story because there's not really information in that just dismiss it entirely so i like for example maybe you can put a link into the the talk with john ianitis one of the epidemiologists i mentioned you know i i've tried to share this video around it's just pure facts. This guy has a huge research team and he's put his reputation on the line to cut through and deliver the facts that are coming out from the scientists and the research. And so, you know, this guy has put his reputation on the line. There is information in what he says. So that's something to keep in mind for all the news, all the people who are hounding you on social media. If, they're not, if they couldn't have said the opposite if the opposite were true and they're not putting their reputation on the line... Be very careful. And I will throw a link up to that as well as your from your website, which is fresheconomics.com. Uh, Cam, thanks a lot for coming on the program. We'll do this again very soon. Thanks, Nick. 22 minutes past 11 Friday.